Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I want to welcome you to this third talk in the long-running series of Science on Saturdays. The talks are produced by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and we are grateful that the lab has offered this Science on Saturdays for so many years. It's become a family event with parents, students, brothers, sisters coming together and it is a community event. I ran into several adults in town last week, that is, adults without children, and they said how great it is that they can come and learn what's going on at the lab in ordinary language. The topic this morning is of Science on Saturday is the sun and NIF and our energy future. It's all about lasers and the National Ignition Facility out there at the end of East Avenue. And we have the go-to guy for lasers with us this morning to shed some light on the topic. Ed Moses is the Associate Director for the NIF programs and directs the National Ignition Campaign. Dr. Moses is joined by Dan Burns, a veteran teacher at Los Gatos High School where he teaches English, Earth, Earth and Space Science and AP Physics. He is President of the California Nevada American Association of Physics Teachers. Are you ready? From the sun to the sun, the story of the NIF and our energy future. Ed and Dan. Sorry. Thank you, Ann. Thank you very much. Before we start, I wanted to do a few thank yous. First of all, I want to thank the free lunch band, you know, from... Uh, from the lab for the great playing they did. I think it adds a lot to everything. I think they deserve a round of applause. You know, then I want to thank Dick Farnsworth and everyone who made this possible. I think they deserve a lot. Most important, I want to thank, we're going to show some stuff that we got from a company called Weird Stuff Warehouse in Sunnyvale, you know, and so we thank them and Weird Stuff. And uh, we have Brian Quintard, who was responsible for that video, uh, Damien Jemison, who is Damien Jemison, who did the, uh, a lot of the graphics here. So let's give them a round of applause for all the work they've done. And, and most of all, I want to thank you for coming on Saturday morning to see what we got here. Before we uh, get going, though, um, you know, how, how, have you guys made the human laser before? Can we bring down the lights a little bit? Not, not fully, but just a little bit. So uh, we have the human laser thing. Does everyone think they know how lasers work? Right? You know, this is a, right, a, can we bring down the lights? So this is a laser, right? You know, you can see it's a small spot, right? You know, you can, if I scan it around the room, whereas if we take this big fancy flashlight, you know, not that, in, not that impressive. So to, to understand that, let's do some uh, human laser behavior. And the first thing I just want, because I have a very fragile ego, one more round of applause for me. Okay. <laughs> Okay, that's enough. Okay, now I want to do an experiment. You know, that's sort of incoherent clapping, you know, everyone just clapping on their own. I'm going to do this experiment. I want you to all start clapping normally, and then when I say synchronize or lock up I, without any, uh, any help from anyone except yourselves, let's just all clap synchronously together. So when I say that, let's go. So everyone just clap. Okay, synchronize. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm, you're impressed with yourselves, I know. So that's the difference between that and that, right? That and that. 
right? Okay, let's do another experiment to just see how lasers work. Let's just clap with two fingers and see if we can synchronize. What's that called? What don't you have enough of? Feedback, right? Lasers need feedback. So there's not enough coming into your ears to hear each other and get into a collective clapping motion. So if a laser isn't working, that means it doesn't have enough feedback. If it is working, when you all can clap together, you can get that collective behavior. That is why we love lasers. And that's why I love that light. It looks so cool. Okay. So, now that you know this, can I have, can we see which, uh, which light there is the laser light? Anyone have a guess? Which one? That one just goes straight up in the air, right? And then we see all the rest of the light, you know, from the windows, from the moon, the cars. That's an incoherent light. Can we bring out the lights a little bit down, you know, just so we can see the screen a, bit, a little better? So anyway, you can see that. So if, here's some more tests for you. You know, this is an Italian piazza. Is this a, a laser or a light bulb? Is this a laser or a light bulb? Laser, right. So you got the whole idea. Light bulb, laser, light bulb, laser, and that's cool. Okay. So um, you now know everything about lasers. So I want to talk about... Um, What's going to, you know, a, a story that I'm going to try to weave <clears throat> during the next uh, 45 minutes about the National Ignition Facility, which is how are we going to build a sun on the earth, or the, from the sun to the sun, the story of the National Ignition Facility, which hopefully will play a major role in our energy future. And you see this beautiful picture of the NIF, the National Ignition Facility. It's a very strange view. We have San Francisco in the background. But anyway... One day, maybe that'll be true. There are three stories I'm going to tell, right? The first one is about the Bay Area, which is kind of a very special place. If you think back from 1849 and the gold rush to 2049, where we'll be known as the source of that clean energy future, there's a lot of things that have been happening. I'm going to talk about the periodic table, how it fits together. Does everyone know what the periodic table is? You know, some people tell me this talk is far too hard for people like you. So I'm going to need some feedback to know where it is. So we all know what the periodic table is. This is sort of the list of all the stuff that makes up, you know, our universe. These are the building blocks of all the chemicals that we have. Here's the periodic table. And then there's one other story I'm going to tell of, you know, a whole bunch of cool people that have had huge effects on our lives, especially in the Bay Area. And uh, the Bay Area has been and is a hotbed of innovation. In fact, this Google map I'm showing you comes from the Bay Area, right? Isn't that a cool picture? So there's the Bay Area. Does everyone recognize the Bay? The Pacific, right? The Peninsula, right? You can see the East Bay, the North Bay. This is sort of where we live. And if we take some, just a little walk around, a fly around, I rented a helicopter to take these pictures. And there's the Golden Gate Bridge, right? And why is it called the Golden Gate? Right, because the 49ers came through there, you know, in the beginning on boats. Uh, some of them then later came overland to get their gold. Then we have the peninsula, you know, the northern part of the peninsula is San Francisco. 
You fly over to Berkeley, which is a, not only the center of uh, a great university, the University of California at Berkeley, the first university, uh, and other interesting ideas, right? And then we go over to Silicon Valley, southern south half of the bay, which grew out of uh, Stanford University because we have two great universities. We have a lot of very good universities and colleges in, in our area, but two great ones, which are intellectual leaders in the world. And then we're going to go over after this right into where we're sitting right now, into Livermore, and fly down on the NIF. And so when that's going to be a tour we take during this talk, and we're going to take it in the context of the periodic table, and the things we're going to be looking at are gold, right? Everyone see gold? AU stands for auric, right? And then we're going to talk about uranium, and we're going to talk about silicon, like in Silicon Valley, right? And then we're going to talk about that little problem we have called carbon. Now, we're all made out of carbon, so we don't think of that as a problem, but when carbon gets together with oxygen and goes into the atmosphere, we call that right green, greenhouse warming, right? Because you know, the thing about carbon dioxide is light can go through it. You know, the light from the sun can go through it. But what happens is when it heats up the earth and then re-radiates back out, it doesn't get back out into space. So it's sort of like putting a roof over the, uh, over the earth and it sort of gets warm. And so we're going to talk about carbon too. And then we're going to talk about one of the most interesting things, hydrogen. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. And it's the simplest. But it is an incredibly interesting, simple element. And we put that together with laser light. It's going to be a great story. And we're going to go over history, right? So now start putting it together. Gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in 1849. People wonder how California, way, way out here, got to be a state so quickly. You know, the United States sort of understood, even those Easterners, which I used to be one of, understood that gold meant something, so they declared us a state. That's Sutter himself. And then <clears throat> we're going to talk about Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which started World War II, and what effect that had on the Bay Area. I'm going to tell you some things that I bet you a lot of people don't know about the Manhattan Project. And then we're going to talk about the discovery of the transistor. Does everyone know what a transistor is? Right? That's a little tiny, tiny switch that makes computers work. You know, computers are millions and billions of switches that are turning on and off really fast to do calculations. Believe it or not, this, this picture we're looking to here, you know, which is uh, the size of some, someone's hand, is the first transistor. Right? So not the way they look today. So that's silicon. And then... Finally, we're going to put light and hydrogen together and talk about clean energy, clean fusion energy. Here's how that story. Gold rush is gold. You know, that's through the Golden Gate. Then we go to World War II in the 30s and 40s. That's the uranium story. Then we head down to the South Bay in the 40s, 50s, and on. That's Silicon Valley, right? Computation, the Internet, and beyond. Right? And then we're going to a clean energy future at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory right here. That's the story I'm telling you. So you all got it? Simple is enough? Okay. So let's start with gold. Now, gold is kind of an interesting element. You know, it's the reason we got here. You know, we, gold weighs, uh, you know, it's very dense, and uh, 
David, why don't you uh, come on up here this way? You know, and we have someone. Can you help him? <clears throat> so gold is, you know, pretty expensive. In fact, it's the most expensive stuff I'm going to talk about. It weighs, costs around $14,000 a pound. People think uranium is expensive. What do you think? Cheap? You know, most people think it's expensive, but it is cheap. It costs like $30 a pound. But what's interesting about gold and uranium is they're really heavy. Now, we have a lead, we have two types of brick that David is going to pick up. First, he's going to pick up the regular brick. You, you know, just put it up. Don't, you know, you can lift it up a little high. Not over your head. Right? <laughs> just, you got it on camera? So that's, that's that. Uh, okay, so now we're going to pick up the brick next to it. Hold on for one second. That's made out of lead. <laughs> what do you think? It's kind of different, huh? Now, I just want you to know, if that were gold, it would weigh about twice as much. Right, so, I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing. So, pick up the lead brick. Why don't you pick it up with one hand? <laughs> no, 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 not over it. Put it on. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Let's hear it for David. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's gold, right? Now, what do we do with gold? We make coins. Why do we like gold? Does anyone know why gold is uh, cool? Loud. Okay, so it's shiny. Why is it shiny? Because it doesn't interact with oxygen too well, so it doesn't rust. So once you have gold, you have it forever. That's what people like as a sign of wealth, right? It doesn't go away. There's not a huge amount of it, so it's worth money. It's soft. You can do a lot of things with it. It has all kinds of really cool things. Every society since the beginning of time has valued gold for those reasons. They also do it because they like to show off. That's Mr. T. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's jewelry for men and women. <coughs> you know, we also use it for technology. What's one thing that's cool about gold? Very good electrical conductor. So if you have to have very thin pieces of gold, right? if you want to have that inside a memory chip or something like that, gold is good. And uh, we can use it to reflect light off of buildings. It doesn't let sun in. If you go up into outer space, see that satellites, if you often see, are often wrapped in gold foil. And that's to control the thermal environment or the heat conditions that exist. Gold is, a, is very useful. And... Gold is the center of, in fact, the reason San Francisco is here in the center of the banking industry and the like. It has made San Francisco an international, cultural, and financial center. So gold it was uh, started in 1849 and still drives our society. I'll show you in a lot of other ways as this talk goes on how that happens. What happened in World War II? Does everyone understand the World War II story? Right? In December, you know, 1941, you know, after, um, you know, the, the war in Europe had started, right? And uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor happened. And, uh, you know, this sort of set off a chain of events that has, you know, changed our world, actually changed our valley. And this goes back to a couple of very important women. Uh, one was Madame Curie, even though she doesn't look very happy in this picture. You know, she was the one who really discovered radioactivity, Right. And this is a picture, you see that skeleton, you know, with her, uh, you know, ring? That's her wedding ring. It's a very European look, where she has the ring. Not, you know, not the way we do it here. 
anyway, and so Madame Curie did that in the late 1800s. This really set the way for Einstein to think about uh, uh, relativity and other things. And then there was another very important woman, Lisa Meitner, who discovered fission. Now, fission, she showed that what was going on, that uranium could spontaneously decay or break apart, put out radiation. And when she did that, a lot of people you know, around the world all of a sudden came to the idea that there was a huge amount of potential energy available you know, that could be used for good or bad. Remember, it was World War II. Bad was what came to people's minds first. And this led to this famous picture of Albert Einstein writing a letter to President Roosevelt urging the development of an atomic bomb for the U.S. because there really was great fear that the Germans would do this and change the fate of the war in Europe and maybe the Japanese also. So even though uh, Einstein was a pacifist, a lifelong pacifist, he wrote you know, this important letter, which some people think was an important issue uh, for him as what he did in 1905 with his great theories of physics. Now, what does this have to do with the Bay Area? Right? Well, it has a lot to do with it, because there's this misunderstanding that Los Alamos is where the atomic bomb project or the Manhattan Project got going. And when you see this, you know, Los Alamos was in the hills in New Mexico. It was a boys' uh, school, and, you know, uh, <clears throat> people went up there. But where it really started was at UC Berkeley. You know, and this is a picture of UC Berkeley in the 40s. It doesn't look a lot different today, but you know, somewhat different. And here's a famous picture, again, you know, not the happiest looking bunch, but, you know, these were the faculty of, of uh, the physics department at UC. I just want to say there are seven Nobel Prize winners, you know, future Nobel Prize winners sitting in this picture. You can see, uh, you know, uh, Oppenheimer, Ernest Lawrence is in the front, many others. And these people were, you know, under Oppenheimer and Lawrence were where the Manhattan Project was hatched. And, you know, and they then went off, a lot of them, to uh, Los Alamos to build it. And one of the things that Ernest Lawrence did, and this is, again, Bay Area uranium, he had to figure out a way to purify uranium. And he built this big magnetic contraption. This, this is quite large. It's unfortunate you can't see people in it. It's about 100 feet long. You know, it would fit across the stage, one of it. They had to build thousands of these <clears throat> to purify uranium. Now, there weren't any computers or anything there to do it at that time. So how, how would you run these, com these very complex machines? Believe it or not, they got these ladies, and they had, like, believe, they had like you can see these rows of dials. Maybe I can get on my computer in my pointer here, and you see they had rows of dials and, and, and all kinds of you know, twisting knobs, and they told them, this is the idea, we want you to get most, more current and more this and more that, and they just sat there like human computers and tuned these things up and ran these calutrons you know, for the whole time of the war and made this possible. Now, this is a little bit different than Homer. You know, you know these people were real heroines, of, of the war, and, you know, not to make light of it, but they really made the uranium. And this is the reason that, you know, the war in, the, in fine, World War II finally happened. I really have to say this. This is a Bay Area story. And Ernest Lawrence, who had, was, had a huge...
huge impact on all of this, then went out as one of the things he did, and formed what was called the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory in 1952. This is, believe it or not, this is right where we are sitting right now, just down the road from it. That, and this is now called Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. That was renamed in the 70s. So this is how we will get, when we get back to the lab and fusion energy, it started at Berkeley, it started at World War II. Okay. Okay, so, you know, we've gotten through the gold rush, we've gotten through the Second World War. Let's go over to Silicon Valley. Does that look like Silicon Valley? No. But it does have a lot of silicon in it. So let's look at this. You know, what, uh, you know can we go over to uh, Dan and the, and the sand? What is silicon? Sand, right? Silicon and oxygen, you put them together, you get sand, right? So, you know, there it is. We're pouring sand here. Uh, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's literally from the beach. And uh, that stuff, unlike gold, costs, you know, it's almost free, right? You go to the beach, take it home, it is free. If you get some clean sand, it costs you around 50 cents a pound, right? You know, if you get it by the ton, it's almost free. And, <clears throat> and when we do that, can we come back to me now? <clears throat> you know, when we do it, People melted that sand, and what they got is that transistor, right? And that transistor, that's what you see how big it is? <clears throat> it looks a little bit different than today. That's a microprocessor that had millions of transistors. And what, what do I see on that? Silicon and gold, right? So we got the you know, gold rush, now we got Silicon Valley. Silicon and gold go together. So let's look at what one of those chipsets really looks like. First, you know, this is one... What, what Dan is holding up, you know, right, it's flashing right now, is that is, let's just stay on that one for a second, okay? Oh, you got them both, right? That there is a silicon wafer and has a, a few thousand microprocessors on it, and each one of those has millions of transistors in it. So we're talking about billions of transistors, and uh, that costs more than 50 cents a pound, I'll tell you, Right? Now let's look at the big thing we're looking at here. This is just a large version of what we what we make, right? That Chris Evers is holding up. That, that's something from weird stuff. Okay, so that's how we make them. So you got the silicon and gold, right? And that's the semiconductor industry. Putting that all together, we build the world's fastest computer at Livermore at the lab. Now here we took the doors off to take this picture. This is a lot of computers running together. Anyone have a guess how many? You think it's one, ten, hundred, a thousand, hundred thousand? Are you guys going to ever bid? I mean, what kind? Of <laughs> okay, this is around two hundred and fifty thousand computers wired together. You know, doing the most complex calculations that ever have been done the fastest they've ever been done. So this is the world's fastest computer, or at least a part of it. But you couldn't do anything without computer programming. So let me remember, that's just a piece of, you know, melted beach, right? Just sitting there. It has no intelligence, right? And it doesn't know what to do, so we write computer programs to make it run. And I, I always have to bring uh, up uh, Ada Lovelace, or, you know, Ada, sometimes known as, who's Lord Byron's daughter. You no, know, she is 
people think probably was the first computer programmer. You know, she was a, you know, a very brilliant woman, and she was working with this guy Babbage to try to figure out how to do weaving better and things like that, and came up with ways to do calculations on weaving machines. And um, that sort of set us on our path, and the path we're set on is to do things on, like on the computer. I got you know, this is big calculations. This is real life, of course. This is Katrina. Watch when Katrina winds up. See, this is what people really want to understand. Could you understand this? Also, wow, right? See that? It just wound up, and now it's heading to, you know, you know pummels, you know, New Orleans. You know, those are the kind of things that people want to use big computers, you know, to really understand what's going on, predict in advance, understand complex physical systems in a way that is, you know, useful for us. Okay, so we got gold, we got uranium, we got silicon. Now we're going for clean energy. Now, <clears throat> let's look at our sun. Let's go far away from us and see, you know, what we got here. Now the sun, this is a kind of an interesting picture from space, and you can see all those flares flying out from it. You can also see the sun rotates. Does everyone know the sun rotates like the Earth? Right? It rotates about once a month, and actually it rotates strangely since it's a big gas, you know, hydrogen ball. Right? Can we show the balloon? No. I mean, this is a helium balloon. We'll talk about it. What's really going on in the sun is we're. I don't know if that's she's a happy person or he's a happy person, but that balloon looks happy. What's going on in that sun? You know, the real sun is that we're burning hydrogen and making helium. But let's go back to me for a second. Let's get back to the computer screen. That's what's going on in our sun. In fact, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting if you go near the sun, if that were the Earth near the sun, near, inside one of those solar flares, does that look like a good weather forecast that day? <laughs> it's a good thing we're far from the sun, right? And we're uh, nearly 100 million miles from the sun. So it's, those flares are big, it's hot. And where we sit, it's wonderful. But if you got too close to it, it'd be pretty ugly. Now. If you go into deep space, and this is from the Hubble, right? You've got millions and billions and trillions of those suns burning. And each one of these blobs or galaxies that has a billion suns in it, I think it blows my mind when I think about it, you know, how many of those suns are out there burning away. Almost everything we see is burning hydrogen. Now, now, we do see planets and stuff which aren't burning, clearly. But the things that we see in space are burning. Now, I'm not, I think if you were here last week, how many people were here last week? So you learned about that dark matter, huh? We don't see that. But how do we know it's there? Because we see this stuff. And this stuff isn't acting right. You know, this, these little flashlights are telling us that there's something else going on. Fusion is the source of all energy from our sun. Fusion is when we take hydrogen atoms, that simple little atom, and just smash them together like you heard in the video, you know, at very high speeds, very high temperatures, and make them turn into energy. And the person who told us that was Big Al, right? Does everyone know Albert Einstein? Right? Well, you've never met him? <laughs> well, anyway, it's too bad. He's, he's been dead for about 50 years now. But, you know, he was one of the great minds of all time, and one of the things he said 
was E or energy equals mass, which is stuff, right? That's mass, right? C squared. What's C? Does anyone know what C is? Speed of light. Is it a big number or a small number? Very big. Nothing goes faster than the speed of light, right? And, and it goes fast. It goes 186,000 miles per second. That means you would go around the Earth seven times in one second, right? So if you got on a plane that traveled the speed of light and you wanted to go to Washington, right, you'd be there in about a hundredth of a second. You wouldn't know, even know you got on the plane. You'd blink and you'd be there. It really moves very quickly. Um, so if we take that very big number and multiply itself by itself, C times C, right, that's what C squared means, you get a really big number. In fact, it's about a million, million, million. That's how big it is. So a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of energy, excuse me, of mass, stuff, if turned into energy, gives a huge amount of energy. That's what's going on in our sun, all the stars, all the time. So our goal is to find a way to get that clean energy on Earth. Now, we can't bring the sun to the Earth because what, remember this picture? We don't want that, right? So we want to find a way to make a very small sun on our Earth and do it. So why do we want to do that? Now, <clears throat> I, I really think, you know, that clean energy really is our species challenge. You know what humankind is? You know what our species is? Homo sapiens? And we have, not only for ourselves, but for our planet, we have to find a way to get clean energy. And the reason that is, <clears throat> is the following. Um, you know, if you look at the world from 2000 to 2050, the amount of energy that we're going to need is going to at least triple. Why is that? Okay, how many people live on Earth right now? Does anyone know? Call out. Six billion, right? Okay, so this, so this to go over this, there's sort of 100,000 people in Livermore, right? So for those of you who do scientific notation, six times 10 to the ninth divided by 10 to the fifth is six times 10 to the fourth. So if we had 60,000 Livermores, right, that's about how many people there are. So another way to think about that is for every person in Livermore, there's another 100,000 people or so. That's how many people are on the world. Now let me tell you the real problem. How many people are there going to be in 2050? That's only, that's only 40 years from now. Anyone want to guess? Unless there's a disaster, there's going to be at least 9 billion people on the earth. Okay, let's think about what is 3 billion more people. How many people are in China right now? Everybody know? 1.2 billion people. How many people are in India right now? Those are the two biggest populations. 800 million people. That's 2 billion. How many people are in Europe right now? 400 million. How many people are in North America right now? 400 million. We haven't gotten to 3 billion yet. 
right? So if you take all the people who are in China, India, North America, Europe, put them back on the earth again, that's the number of more people that will be on earth in, in 2050. That is a challenge for our species. We need energy to make that happen. And those people don't want to live in underdeveloped conditions. They want to live like we do. <coughs> Excuse me. How many more power plants would we need to do that? Um, how about this? Two new big power plants on Earth each week. Does everyone, everyone know, those are big power plants. Does everyone know where Moss Landing is? You know, on the way down, you go down to the aquarium in Monterey. Everyone know where, how many of you have been to the aquarium? Right? And you know, when you go down the road, you pass those big smoked stacks, that's a coal burning plant. We need four of those a week, at one every two days. Right? And we need them forever. That, that's, a, that's a real challenge. That's another way of saying we need 10,000 of them in the next 100 years. And we're going to have to build them twice. There's an incredible amount of energy. Right now, people are powering their world, our world, using coal. This is a big coal mine uh, in Canada, actually. You can see it's kind of an incredible pile of carbon there. Can we show some carbon? No, this is charcoal. This is a little tiny bit. So can you imagine billions of tons of that? When you make a fire, you know, when you cook out, if you use regular charcoal, what do you get? Smoke. So what you do is you dig that stuff out of the ground, you burn most of it, but what you don't burn goes in the air. And, you know, fossil fuels, can we go back to me? Can't keep up, and their climatic effects could be devastating. In fact, I was in Beijing, you know, recently, and that ain't fog. You know, that's, that's pollution. This is like L.A. used to be. So this is, this is really our challenge. So whatever you think about the world, finding a way to get energy, clean energy, is crucial to our future. This is a very interesting picture to me. Now, what, what do you see when you look at this picture? What's the first thing you see? Ship, right? And what's inside that ship? Oil. So you see an oil tanker. I see something else. I see a couple other things. What else do you see? Water, right? Anyone see anything else? Sun. Okay, so does everyone know the word paradigm? You know, paradigm is a way of thinking. This is a good word for you to learn. It's a way of thinking. When people look at this, and I would ask you the question, where is the energy in this picture, you would probably say, in the oil tanker, right? That's what I'm going to drive my, when I go to the get money, uh, get something for my car to drive it or heat my house or whatever, I see that oil tanker. When I look at that picture, I see all the hydrogen in that water. That's, the, that's where all the energy is. And where do I see it coming from? What's the physical mechanism? It's what drives the sun. Could we make the sun on the earth to burn the hydrogen in the water? There's a hell of a, there's a lot more, there's a lot more hydrogen, excuse me, there's a lot more hydrogen in the water than there is oil in that tanker, right? 
In fact, it's an incredible amount. Um, do we have our little thing of water over there? See that little container of water? That has the equivalent of around a million barrels of oil in it. Okay, what are the, how do you describe water chemically? What's the chemical formula for water? Now, you've got to know this, all right? What is it? H-O, right? So two hydrogens and an oxygen. Is there any carbon in that? No, none at all. So if we did this, can we go back to me, right? We have a carbon-free source of energy. Where when we look at that chemical energy, there's a super tanker full of oil. Actually, there's a super tanker full of carbon, right? It's a good source of energy, but it's a good source of carbon dioxide too. <clears throat> Question is, if we're in that paradigm shift, if we're thinking differently, could we build a miniature sun on the earth to use it to burn that hydrogen to get that clean energy. And it's my opinion, and having worked on this long and hard, I think it seems likely. I think that at the National Ignition Facility, which is the NIF, we have the capability necessary for demonstrating that we could do this in the next several years. That's what we're working on. And the reason we think that is because we think we have a way create the conditions that exist uh, in the sun. What is really special about the sun? It's really, really hot, right? What else is special about the sun? It has really high pressures and densities. So remember uh, David was picking up that lead brick? And he was sort of, it wasn't, it wasn't impossible, it was he- but it was heavy. What if you thought about that as it weighed 100 times more than that brick did. That's sort of the, pre- the densities inside the sun. So if that, instead of weighing around 20 pounds, right, you know, weighed a ton, that means not only couldn't you pick it up, you couldn't move it, it would break the table, it would fall through the stage, right? So we have to get that very, very hot conditions, and we have to get those vi- very high densities in order to make fusion work. We think light is the way to do it, <clears throat> You know, the first laser was demonstrated in Malibu, California. Does everyone know where Malibu is? Right? It's in Southern California. You know, I got to tell you, I was, I'm telling a Bay Area story, and I've sort of wandered down to Southern California. The fact of the matter is the guy who, uh, who thought about this first was at, uh, at the Berkeley, Berkeley campus, and, uh, but the first one first demonstrated it was down in Malibu. This is Ted Maiman. He did it at a company I used to work at, used aircraft. It's an incredible story. Unfortunately, Ted uh, died recently, but you know, he's a true, uh, a true technological genius. Some other person who was working at that time you know, is um, Mary Spaeth. She was an early laser inventor. She was working alongside of him. And she still works at the laboratory you know, and uh, is one of my mentors. You know, she looks a little older now, but... Her office looks identical, but anyway, this is, so I mean, I, there's, you know, this is back up in the Bay Area. We have, you know, this kind of innovation is going on again. This brings us to the National Ignition Facility. Remember this laser, right? How many lasers would it, like this would it take to be able to get ignition? 
a lot. Okay. The answer is, if we gave every person on earth about a billion lasers, you know, that's about how many. Now, of course, there's not enough room on earth to give every person on earth a billion lasers. But we have better technologies than that. And the, the NIF is a big laser, but it's not the, that big. It's sort of that big, right? You know, if you look, fly over it. It really doesn't have football fields on the top, which people have asked me, you know. But it's sort of the size of three football fields. And when we take the roof off, it looks like this. We have, uh, you know, room for 192 lasers. And here's the laser bays. And I'll show them to you in a second. And we have this target bay. Remember, three football fields. This is around 400 feet long. For those of you who are scaled to feet, 400 feet, if you ever, if you go into professional baseball games, right, that's from home plate to center field, that long, okay? Um, this is what a laser bay actually looks like in real life. Each one of these tubes holds a laser beam. Does anyone know how big these laser beams are? I mean, look at this one. This is a little tiny thing, right? How big do you think they are? This big? This big? Yeah, it's about like that. Each beam is about this big. Also, they're square. They're not round, which is also interesting. Here's the target chamber being lifted in place. It's hard to tell how big it is, right? But that's a four-story building that it's being next to, those square patches where the laser beams go in. I'll show you a movie to give you a feeling. Now, this is, see those guys walking around underneath this? I don't think they were doing their safety moment. But anyway, <laughs> not something I would have done. But anyway, that's how it goes. And this is how it looks now when you go there. This is the laser. Here's that big ball, that target uh, chamber that we do into it. Now, what we're going to get to find out real soon is the target that we actually shoot at is tiny, 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 even though this is a big, big facility. By the way, I love this picture. Uh, this was in National Geographic. You know, and that's uh, Vaughn Dragoo. He's a little bit over six feet tall, so it gives you a feeling for how big that ball is from the inside. Okay, uh-oh, got to do this, stop this. Okay, so let's look at a target. So can we uh, show the small target first? You put your hand on it, Dan. Believe it or not, we have that huge building, right? I'm going to just do this, you know, that little red dot is the target. And it's in this gold can. So now we're coming back to gold again. And the hydrogen is in here. That's, that little thing here is the little sun. And if you show the big one, can you show the big one, Amy? <clears throat> this is a, a, around 25 times. If we, ever did, if we ever shot a laser, if we ever shot that, it would be a, an interesting day. But anyway, this is just a model. By the way, this one is not pure gold. That little one is. So don't anyone sneak up here and take it. Okay. Okay, so, and this gives you a feeling, and this is a gold can, and I'm going to show you how it works, and then we're going to talk about it. Okay, can you come back to me? Um, so let's just talk about this. Does everyone know how an oven works? Right? Why do you have, why do you cook some things in an oven? and some things in, uh, on the stovetop, right? Everyone know? Yeah, an oven has, you know, filaments on the bottom, right? You know, heaters on the bottom. 
But it's, you close it all up, and what happens is the walls get hot, the top gets hot, the back gets hot, the front gets hot, and then you have uniform heat going onto the roast or your pie or your whatever you're, whatever you're doing. It's completely uniform, right? Now, whereas you put it on top of the stove, you have just heat coming from one, one dimension. Um, so we're going to talk about how we do this. So uh, let's see how we crush this can in a second. And the reason we want to have an oven will become obvious in one minute. Uh, this ball that here is, you know, as I showed you, is about uh, the size of a BB shot. When we're done with it to make it light off, there, you know, if you pulled out your hair and made it one quarter its diameter, you know, just one quarter of the diameter of your hair, that's how small we have to make it. Do we have our friends here? Okay, so we're going to do an experiment here to see how good they are. Where's the ball? Here. Okay, I'm going to squish from the camera here. So this is the problem with squishing. Where do I go? Right here? You got me? Okay, so if you have this ball and you want to squish it, what happens? So if I put my hand in it, right, it just squashes out, right? Forget that balloon for a second. Okay. <laughs> But I want, this is the problem we have. You see that? If that little ball, we, if, if that little ball in the middle, don't touch anything yet, and the target is the, is we scale it up to this size, the challenge is to make it this big. Okay? Do you think that, you know, these guys and gals can uh, crush this balloon to this size? Now, so uh, what do you think? Okay, so I want you to do this gently. We don't want to prove you can break the balloon. Okay, so just push on it and see if we can do it. Now watch what happens. So try to grab the top. So you can see when they, when whatever they try to do, it's sort of just as bulging, just like this one is. If they push too hard or if we get a lot of people around it, now we can do better, but we really have a hard time because there's always a place we're not pushing. Now, if we could build an oven, maybe we could push all places at once, right? Why don't you try a little harder? You got to admit, that's a high talent crowd, right? Okay, so you can see if we just have things pushing on one place or another, it's real hard to do. So why don't we try to build an oven and, and get pushing it all places? So this is what we'll do. Uh, let me show you how it works. We have this can, this gold can. You might say, why is it gold? Because gold has this other property, is it really is a very good reflector of, of radiation, electromagnetic radiation or heat. And what we do is, I'm going to start this, and we go in and we'll look at this can, right? And here's the capsule wall, which is made out of plastic or something. And then we have that solid, frozen hydrogen. Here comes the laser beams in. Instead of hitting the target, I'll stop it, right? They, they hit the can. And when they hit the can, you can just think this whole can is heating up, right? You know, uniformly. And when it does start heating up, and it goes up to millions of degrees in billionths of a second, what's going to happen is it's going to start putting out like a really cool oven, a very hot oven, 
x-rays, and I'll stop it, and those x-rays are now very uniformly hitting that little target. Instead of pushing on it like they were doing with their hands and knees and everything, just really smoothly hitting it, and now they make a rocket, right? And this rocket is now going in at, anyone want to guess how fast that's going? Anyone? million miles an hour. Right? This is the fastest thing that's ever existed on Earth, except light, right? A million miles, the fastest any mass has ever moved. So this is going a million miles an hour, and for a very short time, and what we do is then get this whole process to work. So there, anyone want to see that again now that you're experts? <laughs> Wait, let's see. So this is how it works. Yeah, we have our gold can. Remember gold and hydrogen, right, and the hydrogen target. We have the laser. We look at it. We have the capsule wall that absorbs the x-rays. We have that frozen hydrogen. I know this is a lot to absorb, but the laser light comes in, makes a gold oven, right? The oven is the hottest oven that's ever been made. Millions of degrees, not hundreds of degrees. Sort of make your cake done in a few billion degrees. Drives that in at very high speeds and makes fusion happen. Okay. We are experts on this. Now, how does it work in the laser? Okay, so the laser building is really interesting too. So what we do is we start with a very low amount of light and we have to get it to high energy. And what do we do to do that? It's right here. See this glass? we have the glass, Mimi? Right? This is laser glass. And that's where we store all the energy and make, you know, get enough energy to make that target rock and roll. Now, what do we think that glass is made out of? What's glass made out of? Silicon, right? Can we get the sand out again? If you melt sand especially if you have good sand, you know, you can make glass. When do you think the first glass was made? Right? I guess it was, you know, 100,000 years ago. Someone, you know, had a campfire, you know, was cooking up a wildebeest or something, and, you know, they looked in the, you know, after in the morning they got up and there was a little dollop of glass in there, and that's what that is. Now, that's super high-quality glass, but, again, silicon, that's the laser itself. So let's get this movie going again. Right, so my back on, right? So we go back and forth, getting out all the energy. And what happens is, and we bring it right to the center, of the, right to the near the target chamber, and then we just bring the light right in and make the whole thing happen. So you got the whole idea? That's the target. That's how the laser works. If we put this all together... Let's bring up the noise here. Well, this was the thing you saw. This should all make sense now. This is the control room, right, at NIF. They actually do this. Now we're going to be following along at about a, you know, 100 million times slow down the light traveling through the laser. It doesn't really make music when you do it. And now we're following the laser beams themselves, right? This is eight out of the 192 beams going towards that target chamber. Gaining more and more energy. 
getting ready to turn to ultraviolet light. Right? Going right into that target. Now we're going by at a billion times slower than it really happened. Heating up the target light, driving it. And then, the most amazing thing happens. You get more energy out than you put in. So if you get this to light off, you know, you have the potential to create energy, clean energy. Now people say, is that perpetual motion? Isn't there something wrong with that? How do you get more out than you put in? If, you know, if you light off, um, you know, most things, you lose energy. Now the remember, the reason this is, is because of our friend Albert Einstein. There's a huge amount of energy stored as mass, right, in that target. So if we just can just get a little bit of that to turn from mass to energy, you know, we don't, on the whole balance, we don't get perpetual motion. We've just turned mass to energy, which is what we want. Taking a tiny bit of energy out of the universe, but the universe can do without it. So we are finding a way to make this happen by doing that. This is an incredibly important concept. We can get gain, energy gain from this system. So if I have this laser to work and I hit this target and it burns, we'll get more out than we put in. We now have an infinite source of energy, essentially. Right? All you have to do is drag the hydrogen out of the water. So when we put this all together, let's look at our Bay Area. Gold rush, you know, that started us on our way. World War II, that's where people thought about fission and fusion, how to make all these cool elements, uh, invented computing to first order. Silicon Valley was the, where people figured out how to do rapid computing and, you know, the Internet and beyond. And then at Livermore, we combined hydrogen and laser light to get this clean energy. It's sort of a nice story. It's been going on for 150 years. It's going to go on for a long time more. We're in just an incredible place. Look at this. Now, if you look at a target, it's gold and hydrogen. If you look at the control room, it's silicon. If you look at, you know, Ernest Lawrence and his boys, it was uranium. And if you look at the lab, it's lasers. You put it together. We make a sun on Earth. We have clean energy. You know, the visions of yesterday could become the reality of today. Now, if you look at Bruno, he's standing there holding the first target chamber. Can we show that, Mimi? Right? That is the really, that's the first target chamber. Right? Someday that, hopefully that'll be in the Smithsonian when we get burned to happen. The only thing different, the only thing the same about it was it's a sphere. You go back to the picture, Right? A little bit different now. It's a little bigger, right? So technologies being de developed at the NIF offer a clean and abundant source of fusion energy if this all works out according to plan. The world is watching what's happening here. It's the tradition of the Bay Area. It's the tra tradition of California. The Tri-Valley hopefully will become an international center for clean fusion energy science. If we do, I think will be known as the Photon Valley. So I want to thank you for everything.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.